Shabbat Shalom, everyone. We're going to continue on in our Galatians Unearth series, and um, we're actually going to be finishing up chapter 2. Uh, we're right at the end, so that's not going to be any great feat, uh, but I'm excited because we are going to be even breaking into chapter 3 today, at least the front part of it, and uh, I'm, I'm looking pretty good. We're, we're moving at a pace that uh, I was hoping to move at, so uh, knock on wood, uh, I get out of this thing before 20 weeks is over. <laughs> And so I'm actually pushing for hopefully a 12 to or so week uh, series rather than be so intense. All right. Well, if you remember last week, we hit a turning point in this series in that we saw the Apostle Paul, he brought the Torah into the mix. He brought the Torah to the table. And when you think about it, he didn't have an option. I mean, when you're dealing with this controversy that is ensuing in the first century that has actually exploded, the controversy of whether or not the Gentiles have to be circumcised to be saved, and the apostles standing on the matter that, no, they don't have to be circumcised to be saved, yet, you look right in the Torah, the command is explicit. You want to be part of Abraham's household, you're going to have to be circumcised. And so Paul he doesn't have a choice here. He has going to have to deal with the law. He has to inject. He has to bring this into the conversation. And this is exactly what he did. Now, just as a way of reminder, what did Paul do when he brought the Torah to the table? He established the most important thing that we need to understand in regard to the Torah. And that is you cannot be saved in and of yourself. Your own efforts in the Torah, your works in the Torah, they cannot save you. That is the foundation. Everything else can be built upon that. But if you don't have that, you will be built upon sand. You will be in deception. And so he lays this out there that you cannot be saved yourself. But then we're given the reason, why? Why does scripture say we can't be justified by the law and our own works? Because we've all failed to keep it. So you identify that. We've all failed to keep it. Now, does Paul leave it right there? No, he does not leave us to our own demise. He recognizes this situation, and he throws those anchor statements. Those statements that, okay, no, you're not justified by the law, but does that mean you turn your back on it? Does that mean you walk away from it? God forbid, right? And you look at Romans 3, you know, what do we do after faith has come? Do we make void the Torah? God forbid. We establish it. We stand on the Torah of the Lord. Well, as we continue today, we are going to see that Paul's even going to go further into this discussion of the Torah, of the relationship, its nature, how it interacts with us, how we interact with the law, the law with sin and sin with us. And it's really a powerful thing. And so we're going to move on to verse 19. Here we go. For I, through the law, I died to the law, that I might live to God. Now, here we go with Paul. I mean, for most of you, it sounds a little bit crazy, right? If we were just to isolate this statement in and of itself, it certainly sounds like, to me, just read it. It sounds like he is done with the law. The law no longer is going to be instructing him. It has nothing to offer him. He is dying to it. He's moving away from it. I mean, this is what it sounds like. The question is, is that what is really being conveyed? And I think most of you 
you should have the answer. If you were here last week, you know, you read this and you go, "Mm, I can't be reading this right. I realize my instinct is to say he's abandoning the Torah. But because the information that you have, you should have a red flag and going, no, that, that can't be what he's saying here. Now, for most of you, you know, I believe that most of you recognize the validity of the Torah. Okay, that's great. So you know that that's not what he's saying, but do you understand what he is saying? Do you understand it? See, this is, this is why we're going to dig into this a little bit today. Because this is what we need to be able to express to our fellow believing brothers and sisters. And even those who are just brand new who have just found Yeshua. And they're coming into the faith. Because if they're going to read the Apostle Paul, they're going to need some oversight. They're going to need some teaching. They're going to need mentorship and so on and so forth. And so, you know, statements like this, it's not just about, well, no, Paul's not saying the Torah is done away with. Uh, That's a fragment. What does it mean? How are we supposed to understand that? Because I got to tell you, there is a lesson here for us that is so deep and profound. We need to glean from this. What is he dealing with? What is he trying to convey? Well, in looking at this, I think the best way to assess this is to get to know the Apostle Paul better, right? I talked about this a little bit last week. Get to know his literary style. Get to know the way he utilizes specific words in the context that he uses them in. I mean, he has a very, very specific writing style. And if you look at his epistles, not just at Galatians, but you look at them in totality you're really going to start to understand him at a level that will probably surprise you. And so we're going to do this, and we're going to go to Paul's epistle to the Romans. And as I mentioned last week, this is Romans is the comprehensive version of Galatians. It's detailed. It's clear. It's concise. It's crystal clear. Whereas Galatians is more of this summary And, you know, I had somebody come up. It was interesting. I had somebody come up and say, you know, Daniel, why not the way Paul wrote to the Romans, wouldn't it have been just easier for him to write the same way to the Galatians in that comprehensive fashion? Because you cannot go through the book of Romans and say the law is done away with. You can't do it. There are so many anchor statements all over the place. And Paul flat out telling you, you're supposed to establish the law. And you're thinking with carnal mind, if you walk away from it, I mean, you just can't go through that. So why not write that way to the Galatians? And it was an interesting question. I actually want to answer it because it might help give you some perspective and even more understanding of why we are relying so much upon Romans and why scholars rely upon it when they're, when they're going through the study of Galatians. Think about this. Paul never went to Rome until the very end of his ministry. In fact, when he wrote the epistle to the Romans, he had never been there. Think about that. But with Galatians, he had been there many times. And so think, so if Paul's interacting with the Galatians, physically looking at them eye to eye, teaching them, answering their questions, spending time with them, praising the Lord, praying together, they develop a relationship There are things that Paul knows about them, knows what he's already told them. There are things that he has answered as far as questions-wise that he's already dealt with. Yet with the Romans, he's never once met them. So you you might think that Paul is going to be a little more deliberate, a little more careful 
in his epistle to the Romans to ensure that they're not going to mistake or misunderstand exactly what he said? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why Galatians is written in in the fashion it is versus the epistle of Romans. So we're going to go to the comprehensive version because what we're going to find is Paul actually makes the very same statement that he makes to the Galatians. And so this is what he says. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become, oh, dead to the law through the body of Mashiach. Uh, Virtually identical statements. I mean, really. Galatians, you're dead to the law. He's died to the law. Romans, you're dead to the law. The book was written to Gentiles. What we know is Jew or Gentile? Jew or Gentile? Because Paul is drawing this to himself. We're all dead to the law. Again, what does that sound like? I mean, just looking at that statement, it sounds like the law has no more impact on our life. It's over. Well, the first thing I want to bring to the table is the fact that Paul, in his epistle to Romans, and again alluded to this last week, Paul utilizes uh, the terms law and sin in a transposable fashion at times, synonymously. In fact, let me take this away. Romans 6.11. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. Dead to sin. So he says dead to sin in Romans 6, but in Romans 7, he says dead to the law. In fact, he does this multiple times. I'm not going to put them all up here. But pay attention to that. Let that sink in. He's using sin and law in a transposable state. Now, how in the world can he do this? How can he use sin and law in the same context unless they mean the same thing? But do they mean the same thing? Well, Paul knows. Again, we we looked at this last week. Paul knows the struggles that you're going to have. And brilliantly, he throws the anchor out. And this is what he says. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Certainly not. On the contrary. So he recognizes, yes, I realize I use sin and law in the exact same context. But guess what, people? They're not the same. In fact, they couldn't be farther apart. Sin is vile and ugly. Law is holy and beautiful and righteous. See, now we're getting somewhere. What are we supposed to take away from this? How are we supposed to understand this? What's he trying to teach us? Well, interestingly enough, the Apostle Paul provides a very special key, if you will, that unlocks a very special door to a world of understanding. And it's just a little tiny statement, but so powerful. And it's tucked away at towards the end of his first epistle to the Corinthians. And when we look at this statement, it is going to clear all the fog up in regard to why Paul could possibly say we're dead to the law and yet say we're dead to sin. And the sin sounds like the law and the law sounds like sin. It totally brings perfect clarity. See, it's when you come to these moments where you see something where it makes everything make perfect sense. It's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Let me take you to that verse. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 56, the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. That is it. 
That is the key to understanding how Paul could possibly utilize these terms, sin and law, in the very same context, yet they don't mean the same thing. The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. I want you to think about this analogy. I love to use this analogy because this is exactly what he's conveying. When a snake bites a person, if that snake is non-venomous, nothing happens. If the snake is venomous, that person's going to die. If he gets bit by a black mama and there's no help, that person's going to die. He is going to die. Think of this. The bite is sin. The venom is the law. The venom is what kills. Sin has no power. You need to understand this in regard to the relationship of the law and sin and of us with sin and the law. Sin in and of itself has absolutely no power. None of us would die in sin if it were not for the law. It's the venom. I always like to say, sin will dig your grave, but the law will put you in it. That's the reality. You must understand this reality in regard to the law. So the law is the power. It has great power. It condemns. It condemns you to death. And you think about what Yeshua really is. He's the anti-venom. So you get bit by a black mama and, and, and that venom starts running through your veins, starts to circulate through at an just incredible rate. You're going to die unless you get anti-venom. Yeshua is the anti-venom to the condemnation of the law. And Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Messiah Yeshua, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Anchor statement. Did you catch it? There is no condemnation to those who are in Messiah Yeshua. The law can say nothing to us. It's what condemns us. Sin is not condemning us. It's the law that condemns us. It has no power to speak to us when we are in Messiah Yeshua. But is it interesting? Do we run off and do whatever we want? Do we have uh, the ability to do that? No, because there is no condemnation specifically to those who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. They walk in holiness, purity. For the law of the spirit of life in Messiah Yeshua has made me free from the law of sin and death. Made me free. It set us free. It's the anti-venom. Yes, I was bit by a venomous snake. Yes, the venom went through and was going to kill me. But thanks be to God, I had the anti-venom. I had faith in the Savior, in the Messiah, Yeshua. Moving on to verse 20 in Galatians. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Isn't that interesting? Paul talks about dying, being dead to sin. He talks about being dead to the law, and now he's dead with the Messiah. Pay attention because we're learning the whole relation, how this whole relationship works. He's now dead with the Messiah Yeshua. You know, you read this passage, knowing what's going on in, in Galatia, you can feel the weight and the gravity of Paul's heart. That weight of his faith, that gravity of his devotion, 
he is totally committed to the Messiah Yeshua. Yeshua, for the Apostle Paul, is at the center of the universe. There's nothing. He is the end-all, be-all. He is everything to the Apostle Paul. In his life, Apostle Paul's life has been radically changed because what Yeshua did at the cross. And so when we look at this statement, Paul truly understands the great price that the Lamb of God paid. And because of that, he declares, I've been crucified with Mashiach. Now, to help further put this statement into context, I want to take you to Paul's epistle to the Romans. He's going to draw upon this very imagery. We're going to get deeper into this. Romans 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. Here we are. How do we know? This is an anchor statement. The tip off is, may it not be. May it never be. May ganoita. Right? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin, there's he's talking about this being dead to sin, live any longer in it. Moving on to uh, verse 3. Or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Messiah Yeshua, were baptized into his death? Let's think about that statement. So this is getting deep. It's getting profound in, in understanding when Paul says he's been crucified with the Mashiach. We're getting this full perspective of what Paul's talking about. He's talking about his public profession. He's talking about going into baptism, in, into a mikvah, which is the very imagery as Yeshua was alive and died. He was buried in the tomb. So when we go through immersion, when we go through baptism, which you're, is commanded for every one of us to do who call upon the name of Yeshua, when we go through that baptism, we go into the water as we are going into the earth, into the grave, dead. We're dying to self. We're dying to sin. We're dying with Yeshua. And thus, through that death, we become dead to the law because the law can say nothing against us. Very powerful. Verse 4. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Mashiach was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in the newness of life. And so when you start to see, when you get to know Paul a little bit better, all these terms of saying I was dead to sin and I was dead to the law and I'm dying. I've died with Mashiach. Well, it all makes perfect sense. See, because when we, what can, let me ask you this, just to bring this full circle. What can the law say against Yeshua? He was perfect. He was a man without sin. The perfect sacrifice. And therefore, for us to go with him into death, we die to sin. That means no longer do we live in it, but we become dead to the law because the law cannot condemn us. It's the perfect story. It's the best story. It's victory. Amen. Moving on to verse 21 in Galatians. Let's continue. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the Torah, then Mashiach died in vain. Remember the backdrop. The Galatians are falling into the lie. They can't be saved unless they're circumcised in the flesh. And yet here you have Paul, a Jew, Okay, someone who is of the circumcision, he's actually telling these Galatians that he himself doesn't set aside the grace of God. It's critical that you see he's putting this on himself, a Jew, physically circumcised. 
But even he, he recognizes, I, I can't set aside that grace. He does just the opposite. He trusts in the grace for salvation. But the fact that Paul has to tell them that he doesn't set aside the grace of God, what does that indicate? If he's coming out and telling the Galatians, I, I, you know, I don't set aside the grace of God, it indicates the Galatians are setting aside the grace of God. That is frightening because now we're talking about salvation. Now we're talking about this issue just went from scary to super scary. This is salvational. These people are denying the grace that has come to them. And so because of this, we continue on in chapter 3, verse 1. Listen to what he says. Oh, foolish Galatians, ana etoi. Ana etoi in the Greek. It literally means thoughtless. You who are without thought, you're not thinking. Foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And you look at that in the Greek, baskaino. I just challenge you, go look it up in the Greek. It literally deals with witchcraft, with a spell. Someone who has come and cast a spell and is controlling your thoughts. And listen to this. He who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth. Now, again, I've been setting this up week after week. Every time we see Paul utilize the truth of the gospel or the truth in this epistle, he's explicitly referring to that mystery of God, to that reality that the Gentiles are not required to be circumcised, to be saved, to literally have that full membership status. This is how he's using this term. So you got to understand what he's actually dealing with here. He's saying you've been bewitched. You're not obeying the truth, truth which Paul himself came out to deliver. Before whose eyes Messiah Yeshua was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. Moving to verse 2. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit, oh, by the works of the law or by hearing of faith? Do you understand what that statement means? He is saying, did you really receive the Spirit of God by going out and getting circumcised in the flesh? Is that how you received the anointing? Is that how you received your absolute guarantee to an eternal inheritance? Because that's what the Spirit of God is. It is the living proof of your eternal inheritance. Is that what happened? Obviously, this is a rhetorical question. The answer of which is, they received the Spirit of God because of faith. Through faith, they were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. Moving on to verse 3. Are you so foolish? The second time, he calls them completely thoughtless. Have, in other words, modern day translation, have you lost your minds? This is the modern day translation. Have you lost your minds? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect in the flesh? See, because remember, there were these Jews that were going out that were a fracture, that were a faction. They were not part of, of, of um, the apostles and the, the council. They were coming out bringing a different message. And they were saying, you can't be saved unless you're circumcised. You can't be made perfect. You have to be perfect as Messiah Yeshua was perfect. You can just see what these men were peddling. Verse 4. Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain. 
I got to tell you, this little passage here packs a wallop of information. A wallop. First thing I want you to acknowledge here is that the Galatians, they were running the race. They were holding the line. Paul acknowledges that. They were holding the line even to the point. This isn't just a matter of controversy. They were experiencing persecution. I want you to think about that for a second. Because these Galatians believed in the truth of the gospel, and they believed that they had that beautiful inheritance, that their inheritance was locked through faith and the Messiah, Yeshua, they suffered for that faith. By their own, by these other Jewish brethren who told them, no, you can't. You cannot be saved. Looking at this, what does this tell you? What else does this tell you? It's, it's, it's really something amazing when we see, have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Just ponder, let this sink in. Because I got to tell you, this is amazing. The fact that these Galatians, oh, oh my goodness, they were continuing, continuing, continuing in the faith. But something happened. Might it be, might it be the reason the Galatians were giving in was because of, circum, uh, because of persecution? Absolutely. There isn't a question. What does the devil do? We read about this in Daniel chapter 7. He goes to wear out the saints. He goes to persecute them, to intimidate. And he is relentless and he does not give up. He keeps coming back and coming back. How many of you can testify that the enemy keeps coming, he keeps coming, and you're sitting down there, and pretty soon, at, at some point, you get on your knees, you just cry out to the Lord. So you're trying to fight him according to your own abilities. It's not going to work. You need supernatural strength because you are dealing with a supernatural entity. This is the reality, and this is one of the things that is just mind-blowing about this statement, is that we're given so much information. Yes, they continue, they continued in the faith, but the devil would not leave him alone. He would not relent. He kept coming, kept coming, because his sole goal is to destroy the gospel. That's his goal, destroy the gospel. And so now Paul is asking them, was it all for nothing? Did you experience this for nothing? I'm going to jump ahead to chapter 5, because Paul's going to draw this unto himself. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. It's not just the Galatians that are suffering. The people who are bringing the message, the apostle Paul, he is suffering persecution. And you can imagine what this is doing to him, knowing he's been suffering persecution for what? They're walking away. Of course, he doesn't want to think this is vanity either. He's put himself on the line for this truth, and he has been literally ostracized by his own Jewish brethren. Think about that. Paul is paying a steep price to hold the line. He's being persecuted. Now, I want to bring something to the table here that is vitally important and that you need to recognize in this passage. Paul never stopped preaching the truth of the gospel. He never stopped preaching that the Gentiles, it's not required for them to get circumcised to be saved. He never stopped preaching. 
He didn't teach that it was merely a temporary thing that at some point in the the future, over time, well, at some point, you're going to get circumcised. You can't find one fragment of that, one shred of that anywhere in the New Testament. It doesn't exist. Let me ask you a question right now. How many of you have heard, and unfortunately, you know, we got to do, you do a little house cleaning because things come in, you know, the pendulum effect, as I call it. Because when you get into Messianic Judaism, you get into the Hebrew roots, as people see, there's a pendulum effect where you see, oh, the church is completely lawless. They've lost their minds. And so we got to come to the other side. The problem is it just keeps going. It just keeps going and it gets as crazy over here as it began over there. And it's the pot calling the kettle black. Let me ask you a question. How many of you heard a, a teaching that is out there now in the Hebrew roots, not so much in Messianic, praise the Lord, but in Hebrew roots that states that when Gentiles come in to the, to the knowledge of Torah, they don't, or in, in, in they've, they've confessed the Messiah Yeshua, they don't necessarily, they're not required to get circumcision on the front end. But as time goes on, they're going to have to do this. The Torah commands it. It is required. How many of you have heard this teaching that I'm talking about? Fantastic. This is good. This is a good sign that not many of you heard it. It is out there. Unfortunately, I get phone calls. People in crisis. There are people in crisis where they're like, you know, I can't, I've been told I can't, I'm not Torah observant that I can't keep the Torah unless I actually get circumcised. You cannot make this stuff up. Right? Let me begin by saying this to forewarn you of this teaching. And this is the only reason I'm dealing. I'm glad you ha- most of you haven't heard it. But it's out there so that when you come against it, you'll know what to do. The first thing I want to say, and I'm not going to sugarcoat it, it's a lie from the pit of hell. That, that's just the first thing. It's a completely erroneous teaching. In fact, I would tell you it is diabolically deceptive. All right? This, this, the concept goes against everything that we read about. You know, I'm just thinking, uh, pops in my head, 1 Timothy. Paul told Timothy something that applies to this situation before we start to dig into this. And it's something we need to listen to very carefully. We are at the end of the age. One of the things Paul told Timothy to be careful of is he said men would rise up and they would desire to be teachers of the Torah, neither understanding the things they say nor the things that they affirm. Go and read it. We were warned that this would happen. I'm going to tell you right now, unfortunately, there are plenty of those alive today. There are plenty of those who are not to be, they desire to be teachers of Torah and they do not understand the things that they say. They don't even understand the things they affirm. This is just reality. And so I want to be clear, at no point did Paul ever breathe a breath that the Gentiles at some point who have come into the faith while uncircumcised, that at some point they were to get circumcised. It just doesn't uh, exist. And so what we're going to do is we're going to start to dig into this. And I want to take you back to verse 4. Let's just look at Paul's testimony here. Have you suffered so many things in vain if it indeed was vain? If in fact, let's just play this out. If in fact Paul believed what some of the teachers are teaching today, Riddle me this, why pray tell is Paul rebuking them for becoming circumcised in the flesh, for giving into this teaching? I mean, because remember, this is the problem in Galatia. 
The Gentiles don't, they're falling into this, this trap that I can't be saved unless I'm circumcised in the Torah. And this is after they've received, the, this is, time has lapsed. They accepted the gospel long before this. Now Paul hears that they're becoming circumcised, and now he has to write this epistle. If, in fact, I was to buy into this concept that, no, no, at some time, all the Gentiles, they absolutely have to be circumcised, this wouldn't be an epistle of rebuke. It would be an epistle of praise. Think about it. He would be commending them chapter after chapter. I'm so glad that you finally came into this knowledge, that this has been revealed to you. I'm so glad you have the conviction. It's a beautiful thing that you have this conviction. That's not what he does. You can't get around it. In fact, let me take you back to Galatians chapter 1, verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Does this sound like a temporary message? Does it sound like temporary? Like it's some time-release capsule. That is, you come in, if you're an uncircumcised Gentile, you come in, you're like a time-release capsule. Well, Oh, as time goes on, all of a sudden, poof, now, no, you, you, you have to be circumcised according to the Torah, or you can't be saved. This message was never to end. In fact, Paul warns, he says, if anyone comes with anything else other than what I have told you, let him be cut off. Anathema. He is not to be a part of the faith. You think about these men who teach it. What about the men who listen to it? This is why Paul is getting to the point. You're abandoning grace. This is salvational. It's salvational. You know, what's ironic to me? Here we have this beautiful revival happening. And it's happening throughout the world. Throughout the world. I'm talking China, Indonesia, the UK, America, everywhere. Christians are waking up to the reality the Torah isn't dead in their lives, that it's, a, it's applicable, it's valid. They're waking up to the face, the like, Passover. They're waking up to the Shabbat. They're waking up to Israel. And this has happened, this beautiful revival. It's a move of the Holy Spirit. But isn't it interesting? With this return, this generation is returning to the first century Jewish roots of the faith. They're returning back to the church that we read about in Acts. It is happening right now. But let me tell you this. With that, guess what you inherit? First century problems. That's what you inherit. And that's what's amazing about it. I've never had the Bible, the New Testament, come alive so much so as we are today because of the movement of what is happening, of God's people, the Holy Spirit pricking their heart, returning to truth. And then to see the very same issues that Paul's having to deal with, we're dealing with them today. That is mind-blowing. And I'm thankful that this is, it, 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 it reads like today's newspaper. It's really something. Let's build upon this. I want to take you to Galatians. I'm going to take you back to chapter 5. For in Messiah Yeshua, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith working through love. Understand something. Paul would have never made that statement if we were time-released capsules that we're just at some time later in our faith, as we develop and we grow in the Torah, that the expectation is you would be circumcised. He would never make this statement because he would have to say, no, no, it doesn't matter. No, bottom line for you Gentiles, you come in. No, you can't make this statement. Continuing on, let's go to the next chapter. 
For in Messiah Yeshua, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. And see, this is, this is what I'm talking about. This is a really good example here. This is in the same epistle. But what I love about Paul, he says the exact same statement. But this is how you get to know him. And this is how your understanding uh, it expands. You get greater understanding because he uses uh, the punchline, different terminology. Here, it's faith working through love. Here, it's a new creation. Yes, they're the same thing. But my understanding is so much more broad. I know that faith working through love, that's what it means to be a new creation. That's what it means. Really powerful. I want you to understand the problem. The fact that the Galatians were falling into the trap, that unless they're circumcised, they can't, they can't be saved, it wasn't a legitimate spiritual conviction. It was spiritual blindness. See, that's frightening because what the devil has come, he has come and perverted the Torah. He is twisting the Torah to his advantage to destroy the gospel. And again, I remind you, this is what Satan did, attempted to do against Yeshua. When he fought him in the wilderness, he used scripture. And you think about that concept. It's like if someone just quotes the Torah, we fall over and go, oh, that's perfect truth without having the spiritual understanding. It's scary. It is really, really scary today. I want to take you to one more passage on this. And this is probably the, Paul could not, it's the most unambiguous passage you could find on this topic. It is so crystal clear. It is so concise. There's no wiggle room. He doesn't allow for it. And we find it in 1 Corinthians. I want to take you to chapter 7, verse 18. Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Could that be any clearer? We're talking about the state of men who are not circumcised. They're coming into the faith. And what does Paul say? Is this a time release capsule? No. Let him not become circumcised. It it couldn't be clearer. It goes on in verse 19. Circumcision is nothing. Same thing we just read twice in Galatians. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Oh, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. So that's powerful because before it was faith working through love, right? Then it's a new creation. Now, Paul ties it all up. What is faith working through love? What is a new creation? It's keeping the commandments of God. That is an anchor. He just threw out an anchor. Do I throw out the whole Torah? Because I'm not doing this one thing. Because God has pardoned the Gentiles who are coming in according to the prophets, which, of course, we don't want to listen to. Think about this. Keeping the commandments of God is what matters. So Torah is not done. The expectation for these Gentiles, what they're supposed to be focused on, no, we're to keep the commands of Torah. See, The problem, people struggle with what nobody can keep Torah today unless we're circumcised because that's a commandment in there. Again, open your understanding, open your ears and your heart to what was said in the New Testament by men who are anointed with the Ruach HaKodesh, who are given authority, not just in this age, but in the age to come. This scares me when we start to turn a deaf ear to our brothers who paved the way of the gospel in the New Testament, and we attempt to understand the Torah apart from that, that's not going to happen. 
That is not going to happen. You're going to be completely devoid of understanding. Let each one, listen to this, in case you've missed it in verse 18. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. This is not a time-release capsule situation. This is the declaration. This is what it means in Ephesians 2 for the Jew, the circumcised, and the uncircumcised, for that middle wall to be broken down where they become one new man. There is none of that if all all they are going to be is proselytes. If they have to physically go get circumcised in the flesh, then there is no Jew and Gentile. It's just Jew and proselytes. We're not thinking through this. Oh, foolish Galatians. Today we should say, oh, foolish generation. What is happening? Now, having said all of that, you need to make a distinction that explicitly, when you find the the timetable that's being described here of the individual, the Gentile himself, is someone who's being called into the faith while uncircumcised. That is not saying that the Gentiles who have children that are born into the faith, as a Gentile knows the truth, he knows the truth of Torah, he absolutely will circumcise his children. And he won't do it on the third day or the fifth day. He will do it exactly as prescribed in the Torah on the eighth day. And the distinction has to be drawn here. I want to close today with the question I always get when I'm dealing with this topic. Without fail, it always comes to the surface. What about Timothy? And I have actually had people look at this passage and literally reject everything we went through because they saw the Apostle Paul circumcise Timothy. It it is really mind-blowing. See, this is that scenario where you're not willing to listen to testimony. Let's look at Timothy. Acts 16, verse 1, Then he came, this is Paul, to Derbe and Lystra. And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed. But his father was a Greek. Critical aspect, just stop right there. Critical part of the story. Timothy's mother was Jewish. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Going to verse 3. Paul wanted to have him go on with him. Okay? And he took him and circumcised him. Now, remember, Timothy is Jewish. He comes from Jewish descent. He's well known among the brethren, meaning he is known among the Jewish people. Timothy is no slouch. This guy is known. He has an early fame, if you will, in the faith. All the Jews know who he was, and they knew his mother was Jewish, and they knew his father was a Greek. Now, why did Paul do this? Well, number one, Timothy's Jewish, but we're actually given the ultimate answer in the very next statement. Because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew his father was a Greek. You understand? Why did he circumcise them? Because of the Jews who were in that region. See, his mother was Jewish and would have been seen, Timothy would have been seen as a Jew who has absolutely forsaken the faith, forsaken the Torah, forsaken the people. Now, I want you to think about this whole scenario. Paul is literally sitting with the document in his hand. Acts 16, 
He's sitting with the document in regard to the Gentiles, in regard to the council's decision, stating Gentiles who are coming to the faith, they do not have to be saved. He's holding this document. As he's going on his way, he comes along with Timothy and circumcises him because he's Jewish, because he's going to take him with him into ministry, and he is known. The Jewish people knows who he is, and guess what? If he attempts to go out, all you need to do is go continue to read in the book of Acts, who is with Timothy in the synagogues? Tim, uh, Paul. Paul and Timothy have gone together in the synagogues. You are not going to, if you've been to Israel, you've seen May Shireen, you see these Orthodox sections, they have Orthodox quarters. I'm going to tell you right now, don't think that if you knew, everyone knew who Paul was. Paul was the most controversial character of his day. People, his own people, the Jewish people were making stuff up about him. In fact, we actually read this. But they had been informed about you. This is Paul's Jewish brother coming to him as Paul goes up to Jerusalem that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor walk according to the customs. The word was already going out. And what was the devil doing to prevent the devil from giving him even a sliver or a crack to destroy the testimony that Paul possessed? And keep in mind, Paul went out to the Jew first and he went to the Greek. He was going into the synagogues. They knew that Timothy was a Jew, but not circumcised. That can't happen. You want to give the devil room to destroy the gospel? Bring Timothy, who is a known Jew, but his father was a Greek. Reject the Torah. Bring him with you. It will destroy your credibility. It makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. That's why when we look at this, he specifically says, because of the Jews who are in that region. 